We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Truth Perspective. It is December 11th, and in the studio today, we have Jason Martin. Say hi, Jason. Hello. And we are very pleased to have back, it's been a while, Laura Knight-Yadchik. Welcome, Laura. Hi, everybody. And today, we are going to be interviewing Russell Gmirkin. Russell is an independent researcher and Bible scholar and has written two of what I consider and probably most people that read them consider um, some of the most revolutionary books in biblical studies. The first was published in 2006, titled, and I'm going to pronounce one of these names wrong, um, Barassus and Genesis, Manito and Exodus, Hellenistic Histories and the Date of the Pentateuch. And this year, 2016, he released a follow-up to that book called Plato and the Creation of the Hebrew Bible. And so we're going to be discussing Russell's work and just why and how revolutionary this stuff is. So, uh, Russell, we're very happy to have you. Welcome to the show. Well, I'm very happy to be here. It's very exciting. And if you check out the description on the show, you can see a link to both of the books and to Russell's website, uh, russellgamerican.com. Um, Russell, to start out with, uh, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this field, and maybe just some of the, the steps that led you to come to the, some of the conclusions that you include in these two books. Um, sure. I have a very strong uh, biblical background because I grew up in uh, America, and like everyone else, I, you know, went to church, read the Bible, went to a Bible college, um, and then I kind of uh, went out of that and went into classical studies and got a lot of background in. Uh, all the Greek histories and uh, um, ancient sources. And uh, then I get drawn back into uh, uh, biblical studies when I was doing some research for a book that I was writing called uh, In Search of the Pillars of Hercules. And there was was one source on uh, the Pillars of Hercules named Barossus. He was a Babylonian uh, priest. He wrote around 280 BC. And um, so anyway, I, I read his, uh, his materials on this one research project, and I was just struck by how close um, his book on Babylonia uh, resembled the early parts of Genesis. Um, Scholars have for a long time uh, understood that uh, Genesis drew on uh, all sorts of Mesopotamian sources. They um, they know that it drew on the Babylonian creation story, the Sumerian king list with its 10 generations of incredibly long-lived kings before the flood. 
the Babylonian flood story from the Epic of Gilgamesh and others. Um, well, as it turns out, um, Barosis, uh, he translated every one of those works, these exotic uh, sources in uh, ancient cuneiform and dead languages like Sumerian. He translated them all into Greek around 280 BC um, so that uh, the authors of uh, Genesis um, only had to read Barosis to get all those uh, Mesopotamian sources. Um, and in fact, his translations and paraphrases were often closer to the biblical versions than the cuneiform originals. Mm -hmm. So to me, this, this showed that the authors of Genesis, they had to write sometime after 280 BC, and they had access to Greek books on history, including Barosis. Well, and this is, um, this is where we get into one of the big issues, because... The, the common view of the Old Testament is that it was written thousands of years even before that. Is that correct? Like, can you tell us a bit about what the, what the commonly held view is on the history of, of the Bible and when it was written? You bet. The, um, the Bible claims to be an ancient book. And until the last few centuries, uh, its claims were taken as fate, at face value. Um, Moses wrote the books of Moses, and Joshua wrote Joshua, Isaiah wrote Isaiah, and so forth. Uh, people still believe this. You know, that's okay. I did it as a teenager. We all did, didn't we? Um, yeah. But uh, by around 1600, the top <laughs> Bible scholars came to the realization that Moses just plain couldn't have written the books of Moses, uh, which are, you know, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. Moses couldn't have written that anachronistic passage in Genesis that mentions uh, later kings in Israel that were long after his time. He couldn't have talked about his own death in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, let's face it, <coughs> Moses couldn't have written these books 500 years before the invention of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, but still, if these, if these books weren't quite as ancient as they claimed to be, virtually all scholars as late as 1990, still tried to date the books of Moses and the rest of the Bible just as early as possible, taking into account obvious anachronisms. And uh, they imagined that these books were written in the time of Solomon or King Josiah or Ezra, certainly long before the coming of the Greeks. Um, then in 1993, uh, a Danish scholar named Nils Peter Lemke wrote a modest article called, Is the Old Testament a Hellenistic Book? that asked the simple question, why do we insist on dating these biblical texts as early as possible? Why not look at the latest possible date as the proper starting point? Now, the first real evidence for the Old Testament comes from around 270 BC, when the five books of Moses were translated into Greek for the Great Library of Alexandria in Egypt, about 50 years after the conquests of Alexander the Great. Now, before that time, there are very few historical references to the Jews and no references to biblical writings. But after that date, there's an explosion of Bible-related writings. Uh, so what's, what's the real evidence for the Bible being older than the 200s BC, other than naked assumption? Um, 
Well, anyway, Niels, Niels Peter Lemke and Thomas Thompson and Philip Davies, they got into so much trouble in the 1990s uh, in what came to be known as the minimalist-maximalist de- debate for even suggesting that the Bible might be as late as the Hellenistic era after the conquests of Alexander when the Greeks ruled in the lands of the Near East. Uh, but now their view is pretty much mainstream, especially in Europe, although uh, not all scholars in North America have gotten the memo. <laughs> so, in, uh, you know, in, the, in two books, including uh, Brosis and Genesis and uh, at speeches at conferences and uh, several articles, um, I've really provided the smoking gun evidence that the Bible really was written in the Hellenistic era, like they suggested. And that the team of Jewish scholars known to have translated the books of Moses from Hebrew to Greek for the great library at Alexandria around 270 BC. They also wrote the books of Moses using Greek sources they found at that library. So, uh, so we now know for the first time in biblical scholarship who actually wrote the first, uh, books of Moses, when and where they were written, and uh, what the favorite books were on their bookshelves. And it's almost like having a telescope into the past at the time the Bible was created, because we know uh, they, we know the sources they read, uh, we know a lot of their thinking, um, and we know how they went about writing these books. So it's a very exciting time for biblical scholarship, and I'm uh, kind of proud for my contribution to the whole uh, debate. So uh, the Bible um, contains so many Greek parallels. Uh, it's now perfectly obvious that the biblical authors were very familiar with Greek literature and uh, that this could only have happened uh, after the time of Alexander the Great, when uh, the Greeks conquered the East from uh, Egypt all the way to India, and including Judea, and they spread Greek culture in all those lands. Um, so let me just point out one, uh, one fun example, uh, which I discuss in my latest book, uh, Plato and the Creation of the Hebrew Bible of a Greek parallel to the biblical material. Uh, the whole plot of Genesis, uh, from Genesis through Joshua, I should say, it comes right out of a typical Greek foundation story, um, of which we have dozens of examples. Um, in these stories, the land is typically promised by the gods to uh, some famous ancestor, kind of like the Bible and Abraham. Uh, later, an armed expedition sets out under a divinely chosen leader and lawgiver, like uh, Moses leaving, leading the Israelites out of Egypt. And then this colonizing expedition reaches uh, the promised land after many difficulties and adventures. Uh, the, re- the leader writes out the constitution and the laws of the nation, and the land is conquered and divided up among the colonists and etc., just like in the Bible. Uh, the Bible clearly got this whole storyline uh, from the Greeks. And you could cite many other examples, uh, you know, with Greek parallels to uh, biblical law collections and history writing and the prophets and uh, the erotic poetry in, uh, in the Song of Songs and 
uh, uh, the Greek play that is the Book of Job, and so on and so forth. So in the last 20 years, our uh, our knowledge has really kind of become revolutionized, and uh, we're now really recognizing uh, the Greek contributions to the Bible. Russell, just one one yes. technical issue just before we get into it. Um, can you move yeah. the mic- your microphone a bit further away? Um, we've got some some feedback saying that uh, it's uh, we can kind of hear the sure noises. Okay, how, that how sounds better. This? Yeah, that sounds better. Thanks. How's, oh, good. Very good. Laura, were you going to say so? Something? Yes, I was just going to say that you know that this is <clears throat> um, well. I mean. It, it is revolutionary, but, you know, years and years ago when I was reading uh, John Van Cedar's uh, In Search of in search of History, uh, uh, his uh, In Search of Abraham, whatever, uh-huh. se- several books, uh, he mentioned in there in a, as an aside uh, that, you know, the, the problem of the relationship of the stories of the of the Old Testament to you know, Greek stories, and also to uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. And um, and I had all, you know, I'd always thought that, you know, this story of David and Goliath was just so bizarre because here's David against this giant, and he's got the stones in his pouch, and he cuts the giant's head off, you know, this overwhelming power. And it just, you know, it just struck me that this this little a little pericope of the David cycle uh, just was so much like the story of Perseus and Medusa. You know, you've got the stones, you know, she turned you to stone. If you looked at her, he's got the stones in the pouch. He cuts her head off, puts it in a pouch. Uh, David's got a pouch, cuts the head off of Goliath and so forth. You know, the small guy against the big overwhelming force. And I just, you know, it just, uh, it stuck with me for years and years. So I was really happy when I read that. Yeah, that's. Go ahead. Yeah, that's a very interesting parallel. There's a lot of parallels between uh, David and Goliath and um, Homer's Iliad, too. They had a lot of um, stories where one champion from one army would face off against the other champion from the other army in a one on one battle witnessed by both sides and uh, and Goliath he's dressed up like a um, typical Greek soldier he even has a little shield carrier like the Greek hoplites um, and it, it's just very Greek it's uh, there's the Perseus and Medusa echoes uh, there's lots of Greek echoes in uh, in especially in the stories of David um, there comes a lot uh, a lot comes out of uh, Homer um, quite a number of parallels. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. So then, uh, then you go along and you read things like Bruce Loudon and his his comparison of some of the Old Testament stories to, uh, you know, the Odyssey, and then uh, Vesalius who compares the the overarching structure of the Old Testament from Genesis through Second uh, Kings as being very similar to the structure of. Uh, Herodotus histories, and then uh, uh, what's his name, Wajinbaum, uh, uh-huh. who uh, who wrote, you know, the Argonauts of the Desert, and made those all those comparisons. 
And somewhere in there, your book came in, uh, you know, because I was reading them fairly chronologically, and and it was just like it all just began to, it all began to make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, well, uh, Philippe's book played a large role in my first <coughs> book, Plato, Plato and the Creation of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, right after I wrote my first book on Barosis and Genesis, I started on a second uh, book on Greek sources on the whole Bible. Well. I had it really completed in 2011, um, and uh, my editor, Thomas Thompson, said, I should take a look at this new book by this uh, young Belgium scholar named Philippe uh, Waddenboom, uh, Argonauts of the Desert, that, uh, and maybe incorporate some of his stuff on, uh, on Plato into my book. So he his book was basically a catalog of all possible little literary uh, parallels between biblical and Greek writings, including Plato's Laws, which had, uh, you know, it has extensive legal parallels to the Mosaic Laws, uh, as was known since Greek and Roman times. Uh, The church father Eusebius, he had a large section with comparisons between the Bible and Plato's Laws. So... um, when I read Philippe's book, I basically took tossed out my manuscript and started over. And um, I did. I decided to embark on a systematic comparison of biblical Greek and ancient Near Eastern laws to see uh, where the bi- biblical laws came from and if they came from Plato's laws, like Philippe had suggested. I uh, I really dreaded. I got to tell you, I really dreaded researching the biblical law collections, which I can I considered to be the the most boring part of the Bible, except for maybe those uh, genealogies and chronicles. Yep. Uh, but I had that's to, horrible. I, it's tough. It's really tough reading. Uh, so, um, so I had to research every biblical law, and. Every law in all the law collections of the ancient Near East, like Hammurabi's law code, and every Greek law uh, on inscriptions and literary collections and um, everywhere, you know, including the theoretical laws proposed in Plato's Laws, which was the last book that he wrote around 350 B.C., Um, now no one had ever done this before. No one had compared uh, Greek, ancient, Near Eastern, and biblical laws before. Uh, why was that? Uh, it's because everyone had assumed that the Bible's laws were super ancient, you know, certainly older right. than Plato. So why bother? Um, it would have been a pointless exercise in the opinion of scholars clear down till you know, the 1990s. So when I did this huge research project, what I discovered was uh, pretty stunning. The Bible has a huge debt to uh, to Greek laws, and especially to Plato's laws. You know, along with uh, just a handful of laws that do come from the uh, Mesopotamian uh, uh, ancient Near Eastern law collections, but mostly from the Greeks. And it's just evident that the biblical authors at Alexandria's library. Um, had done extensive comparative international legal research there, which was uh, very common for Greek legislators who were putting together a law code um, <coughs> before they before they wrote down the biblical laws of Moses. Um, so, 
you know, the laws of Moses are based on a lot of these laws from uh, from Greek sources. Uh, and as it turned out, uh, Plato's Laws was the most important book that they consulted. You can find traces of it from the first chapter of Genesis right through the prophets. Um, and in fact, the very idea of a Bible, a national collection of approved sacred texts, uh, it comes right out of Plato's Laws. Russell, can you? It's absolutely fascinating yeah. that uh, all these years we've been conditioned to think that uh, the Old Testament and Judaism is like what do they call it, sui generis, and uh, and Christianity, of course, is is the uh, unparalleled um, fulfillment of Judaism, and of course they have to keep. Judaism in that pure state, you know, from God's mouth to Moses' ear, and then immediately take that and bridge over into Christianity so that, uh, you know, they preserve this um, this power structure is what it amounts to. It's it's a power structure. It's about our God is the right God, and, and biblical studies are done in such a way that... Uh, you know, it preserves us forever. Is there a television in the background somewhere? No, we're getting some um, echo. Me no, too, a your, little bit. That's uh, your voice coming through on a speaker or earphones that are leaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but any, but anyway, that's that's the way I felt about it. Was just absolutely stunned. I do have a question. Yes. What, what is the <clears throat> the issue that the, the people who are seem to be kind of very much against this uh, investigation into the Old Testament. There's obviously a group of scholars who who are really identified with the idea of the sui generis uh, Judaism. Uh, what is it precisely that they fear in this kind of investigations? Well, um, there's a couple answers to that. Um, you know, one of them is that most biblical scholarship is done in, uh, or a lot of it's done in um, seminaries and religious studies programs and things like that in the U.S. So there's, you know, there's a conflict of interest. It's it's kind of the fox in charge of the hen house uh, sort of a thing. Uh, but the other thing is, is just, it's, it's uh, I think it's largely scholarly inertia. Um, Thomas Kuhn's book, The, um, the uh, Structure of Scientific Revolution, uh, he talks about the inertia of, uh, of paradigms, how uh, knowledge is passed down from teachers to students, and the students adopt all of the assumptions of their revered teachers that they studied at the feet of, and then they perpetuate it right down the, the line. And it's very hard to uh, to talk about a, a really challenging uh, new perspective that's revolutionary because you have to throw out your education, you have to throw out all the books you've ever written. Uh, um, um, so um, it almost takes, um, a lot of times it takes someone from the outside who 
goes into a field without any of the assumptions and uh, um, without being indebted to, uh, you know, the person who uh, proposed uh, them, you know, their, ran their PhD program, um, to to go in with uh, with a fresh set of, uh, um, or rather a lack of assumptions, a new perspective, and kind of reinvent a field from the ground up. Um, now, when the Copenhagen School, you know, uh, Niels Peter Lemke and uh, Thomas Thompson and Philip Davies, all of whom I got to meet at a recent conference in Copenhagen, by the way, they're, they're great people. Um, when they challenged the maximalist uh, assumption that all these books were way far ancient and said, well, let's look at the whole range of possibility. They could have been written any time between, say, the time of Moses and, uh, and, and 270 B.C. Uh, let's look at that whole range of dates as possible and see where they fall in there. Well, that, that throwing out the assumptions of the antiquity of the Bible, um, it just opens uh, – <clears throat> opens new possibilities in research. And uh, that's, that's how I came in. And, uh, and I looked at um, uh, any, any Greek sources or ancient Near Eastern sources before, say, 270 BC, and I looked at them as all potential sources for the Bible and discovered, yes, the Bible drew on uh, Barosis and on the Egyptian priest Manetho and uh, Cletarchus and uh, and Plato in this case. Um, and But if you share those old assumptions, and uh, especially if you're paid to have those assumptions, you're mm -hmm. just not going to go down that road. And uh, surprisingly, I've had little really, really <laughs> negative feedback from other scholars you know scholars have been pretty uh, pretty receptive to my work except uh, when they're protecting their own uh, uh, books that they've published I don't think Ben Cedars likes me very much uh, <laughs> oh, oh dear <laughs> he uh, well, he he really initiated this whole comparison between uh, Greek writings on history and biblical writings, but he dates the biblical writings way early, way before the Greeks ever came uh, into uh, Judea and, and the East. And so um, I don't understand how he can uh, believe that all of this influence took place before the, the Greeks and the Jews had any context, you know. Yeah. It's kind but, of strange uh, because... Well, for me, I mean, this made Old Testament studies far more interesting instead of, uh, I kind of like the idea of, of the, the Old Testament being rooted in Hellenistic culture more than being sort of this, uh, off from this sort of Middle Eastern, uh, small, small kind of backwoods, you know, province. It, it kind of seemed very alien to me, but I think, this actually makes it all the more interesting and more exciting to see, oh, wait a minute, there's this huge uh, historical cultural influence coming through. I mean, it's like uh, a line that connects all the way back <clears throat> in the past instead of being this line that connected to this one place that stopped in this sort of foreign land. It's like, oh, there's influences from various other countries in Asia Minor. There's Babylonia. There's, you know, 
all these different areas, but there's also the sort of the Hellenistic Greeks. And for me, that makes everything far more interesting when you read the, the biblical stories now. When, when I look at them, I, I start looking at them through that lens and they seem so much more interesting, uh, mm-hmm. so much more uh, connected to, to history than, than they ever did before. Yeah, before it was, you know, from God's mouth to Moses' ear, and that was it. And you're not allowed to question that. You know, what what was God doing before he created the world? He was creating hell for people who ask questions. <laughs> um, something in- else that's interesting is there was kind of a, an echo phenomenon uh, where, uh, you know, the Greeks invented um, a lot of historiography. Um well, Van Seeders and Halpern, they said, well, the Jews actually invented historiography before the Greeks. And Halpern has said, well, the Jews invented uh, um, a demythologized uh, uh, cosmology in Genesis 1 uh, when the Greeks were doing the same thing. And Westberg said, well, the Jews and Greeks, they were coming up with parallel laws at the same time. You had all these echoes and... Um, there must be 10 different areas where um, the Jews either had uh, a primacy of discovery independent of the Greeks or, or, or parallel and independent um, based on the biblical writings. I'm not doing anything just to subtract from the genius of the Jews, but, uh, but all these different echoes, never, nobody ever tied it all together and said, hey, maybe these Jewish writings came after the Greeks and all these things that we've credited uh, the ancient Jews and Israelites for, they learned it from the Greeks. You know, that's a very economical explanation as to why uh, they're so very similar. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the there's, there's an, that's one There's of the impressions. That, no, go ahead, Laura. I was just going to say there's another area that, that strikes me as furiously interesting, and that's the whole idea of monotheism, because, you know, I recently read, uh, well, not not so recently, but some time ago I read uh, Norman Kahn's book on, on uh, apocalypticism, and he... Uh, <clears throat> He finds that it uh, really kind of originated with the Zoroastrians. And then you start digging into Zoroaster and, you know, his whole monotheistic shtick. And uh, you get into the uh, uh, Mary Boyce who thinks that uh, Zoroaster was, you know, far, far earlier. And you realize that there were some connections between uh, uh, the Mitannian Empire and the Egyptian Empire uh, just prior to the appearance of Akhenaten and his monotheistic thing. And you you start wondering, you know, where this came from, because when you read uh, studies of the archaeology of of the Palestinian area, you realize that, you know, they were basically polytheistic and they were, you know, a lot of them were engaged in child sacrifice and so forth. And there are echoes of that in the prophetic writings, uh, you know, Ezekiel and Isaiah and so forth, uh, condemning the um, <clears throat> the Jews or the uh, proto-Jews or the Canaanites, whatever, for uh, their, their child sacrifice and the sin of Manasseh, et cetera, et cetera. And you get the idea that they didn't really become monotheists until after uh, their exposure to... Uh, the Persian Empire, uh, 
you know, so they picked up some things from Persia, from Babylon, from Egypt, etc., and then a whole lot of stuff, put it all together during the time of the Greeks and kind of uh, came up with a, a, a big pot of soup, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I've been finding that to be extremely interesting. It's as though, but then, but then what they did was they wrote it in such a way with the claim to, you know, the original everything. And, uh, you know, as Bruce Loudon points out, you know, some of the stories, they turn things around completely so that it seems like the story is not the same as the Greek story that it's derived from. For example, uh, Abraham arguing with God about the fate of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, similar to the goddess arguing with Zeus about the fate of Odysseus and his men. You know, so it's, you know, so instead of the goddess arguing with the God about the fate of a man, you have a man arguing with God about the fate of other people. So it's like um, uh, everything is disguised very cleverly and the claim to total originality is put out there and people believed it because when Christianity came along, it needed Judaism to be, you know, the direct line to God. The God of the universe, the Creator. Well, if, I, if I remember well, correctly, didn't Aphrodite argue? Sorry. Oh, you go ahead, Russell. <laughs> well, I was just going to uh, reinforce uh, some of what Laura said. Uh, we know from ancient inscriptions that they found that uh, the Jews and the Samaritans they were polytheists. Uh, they, the, the inscriptions say that Yahweh had a consort or a wife named Asherah, who, you know, the Bible condemns the Asherah uh, up one side and down the other. But that's that's what they had back then. Uh, Yahweh had a wife, and uh, we know from the Elephantine papyri. Uh, of around 450 to 400 BC, um, Elephantine was uh, a Jewish military, Jewish and Aramean uh, Samaritan military colony on the Nile, above the Nile. It kind of protected Egypt from uh, invasion from the Ethiopians. Um, so, so this military colony, they found a bunch of papyri still preserved in uh, Egypt's hot climate from around 450 to 400 BC. And in those, we learned that uh, Jew, Jews had uh, a temple in Jerusalem. The, uh, the Jews at Elephantine, they had a temple of Yahweh there at Elephantine. Uh, we know the Samaritans. <laughs> had a temple of Yahweh at Gerizim. They had all sorts of temples. And the uh, people at Elephantine, they swore by Yahweh and Beth Anath and, uh, you know, a few other Aramean and uh, uh, Babylonian gods. They were polytheists. Um, and, uh, you know, around 415 BC, they wrote, the religious authorities in Jerusalem and Samaria saying, the Egyptians just tore down our temple. Can we have another one? Can we have a new one? And uh, the people in Jerusalem said, sure. So, you know, you know, for a fact that the Bible hadn't been written um, at that time, at, at that time, they, uh, they didn't have monotheism. They didn't have one temple. They didn't have the Sabbath. They, 
you have the seven days of the week, the, you know, a seven-day week at Elephantine, but you have this one business owner who threatens to kill one of his employees unless he shows up on the seventh day and takes a boatload of vegetables. Uh, you know, they were working on the on on Saturday, so um, you know the the Bible's later than that, and and monotheism is later than that too. Um, I tend to view monotheism, though, as uh, in the Bible, as mostly coming out of Plato. Um, uh -huh. um, it's um, quite a few people have suggested Zoroaster and the Persians, um, but part of the, the reason for that is because they believe that the Bible was written in the Persian era or and no later, but. If you also consider possible Greek influence, uh, Plato was a monotheist. Um, several of the Greek philosophers were monotheists. Uh, Anaxagoras, uh, he was uh, prosecuted for atheism because he believed in one God. And so was Aristotle. And Socrates was executed for that reason. Um, and so Plato did a really interesting thing. It's really interesting because it has biblical parallels. He said, all right, my, my teacher Socrates, he had to drink hemlock because uh, Athens considered him an atheist because he believed in this weird one God sort of a thing um, and a few other reasons. Uh, so Plato said, we're going to have that one philosopher's God. His name was... Uh, Nous, which means intelligence or mind or uh, reason. Um, we're going to have him. He's kind of the the god of the ruling class and the philosophers and the people who are going to run this uh, this state that I'm inventing. But the regular people underneath, they can have as many gods as they want. They can have all twelve gods. Uh, of uh, the Olympian deities that Athens had. In fact, we'll, we'll make it a law that uh, if you don't believe in the 12 gods, uh, you'll be executed just like they, uh, as an atheist, just like they did in Athens. So he had his own uh, private monotheism that uh, for him and his guys, his clique, uh, his ruling class elites, and then the popular people, they were allowed to have uh, all sorts of gods. And you see the same thing in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 1 basically has one god, and a lot of that stuff comes out of uh, Plato's book, uh, the Timaeus, which talked about how the, the universe came into existence. But... Um, Genesis 2 jumps into, you know, multiple gods and this local god, Yahweh, who's walking around in the Garden of Eden. And uh, the book of Psalms and Deuteronomy, they talk about uh, El and the seven, and his 70 sons, his, uh, his divine counsel. They had all sorts of gods that they recognized. They just said that Yahweh was um, the Jewish god or the best god. Um, so they had this kind of monotheism that coexisted with poly polytheism, and the Bible really isn't uh, isn't monotheistic except Genesis one and maybe a couple chapters in Isaiah. Um, it, later generations of Jews who read the Bible they came around to the idea of only one God, but 
uh, the idea of multiple gods named El and Yahweh and uh, um, things like that. Now, that hung on for a, a re- remarkably long time. <clears throat> well, so Russell, it's all... for go ahead, it, Harrison. Yeah, getting into the because you, you mentioned well, Laura mentioned the uh, the Persian influence, and then you mentioned that this in your mind this is looks more like an influence straight from Plato. Um, this kind of gets into the issue of looking at the book, the Bible, as a book written in 270 BC, because the Bible covers a history that stretches back thousands of years, um, and all of the you know all the famous Bible stories. So the you know slavery in Egypt and uh, the Exodus, and then coming back, and then the the exile and you know in Babylonia and in per- well, and then the Persian influence. So we've got all these stories and all this kind of history mishmashed in there and in your book you point out uh, well the one thing that stands out for me is that a lot of the earliest stories seem like they are just almost like complete fabrications based um, based on these uh, histories and stories that you'd find in the Greek writings but I'm wondering if if you could tell us what you think about um, what you think about the history pre-270 B.C. in the Bible, how much of that do you think might actually be true, or is it all this kind of uh, fan fiction or, you know, historical fiction that um, that you find in, like, the stories of Moses, for example? Like, what about the, um, like, the Persian influence and, uh, you know, the prophets writing, um, you know, in exile and things like that? Well, um, I think the starting point... Uh, for the modern discussion has to be that the Bible was put together in the 270s BC. Um, But Plato also uh, advocated that, uh, you know, when you're creating this national literature, uh, which we can, we can get into his invention of the Bible in a little, in a little while later. But he said that, uh, you should research all the old local legends and, uh, uh, the local gods and ancient temples and incorporate as much of that into your national literature and, uh, your cultural traditions as possible so that all this stuff appears to be, uh, ancient and, uh, based in the gods of the land and all of that. So so there was uh, an impetus to preserve um, as many ancient materials as were compatible with the new laws that were created in 270 BC. Um, and to pre- preserve parts of uh, Jewish heritage that were considered harmless or supporting the, the uh new system of government that they were inventing. So uh, we know some of the sources are uh, were, were ancient. I mean, the king lists in, uh, especially for the northern king, uh, for the northern kingdom, um, I don't know, uh, starting after Ahaz or so, uh, I mean, Ahab and um in Judea, starting with around Hezekiah, a lot of that stuff is is uh, very accurate. The the chronology is accurate. The names are accurate. We know that because uh, these kings were mentioned in Assyrian uh, inscriptions, and uh, the chronology lines up. So so 
the Book of Kings has these uh, chronicles of the kings of Israel and uh, and of Judah, and those have to preserve, um, you know, kingless from from that from the monarchy. So that that part's accurate. Once you get earlier than that, once you get earlier than uh, uh, the divided monarchy where Israel and Judah are separate, once you get in the time of David and before that, that's uh, legend or novelistic or uh, uh, it's... <clears throat> The, the biblical authors didn't even cite any sources for that older material. Mm-hmm. Um, and the David stories are clearly novelistic, and they have lots of parallels with Homer and with, uh, with other Greek writings. And, uh, and the, the Moses story, the, the Exodus, um, they had, you know, that was really basically uh, pretty much made up based on... Uh, um, based on uh, an earlier account by uh, a man named uh, Hecateus of Abdera. He was a Greek writer. He um, went to Egypt and he uh, wrote a book um, on Egypt for um, for the first king for the first king in Egypt after Alexander the Great. And in this book, he had a little story about the foundations of Judea. Uh, he said that uh, uh, someone uh, named Moses went to uh, uh, let out a colonizing expedition from Egypt because the Egyptians were overpopulated. And they went to uh, Judea, which was uninhabited at the time. And uh, he came up with 12 tribes and all sorts of laws and wrote a constitution and founded a temple and uh, did all these things. And he basically founded Jerusalem and its temple, uh, according to this really typical Greek foundation story written around 315 B.C. Well, um, the the Greeks... Uh, King Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, who was who ruled Egypt, uh, he read this book by Hecateus of Abdera, and he and his people they were very curious about this story. This story about how this, uh, this this Egyptian named Moses wrote these laws of the Jews. So they sent a request to the Jews, said saying, "We want to know about these laws that we found in this foundation story." Uh, from Hecateus. And that's when the Jews sent this delegation of scholars to Alexandria to provide a copy of their laws for the Great Library of Alexandria. And also, uh, since these were the ancestral laws, they also had to have the story of uh, how these laws came into existence. And they basically took their cue from this earlier Greek story from Hecateus. So we actually know the source of that. It's a Greek story. Um, Hecateus didn't know anything about the Bible. The Bible hadn't been written yet. He just wrote this uh, kind of a fantastic story of uh, the Egyptians founding Judea, kind of like he said, the Egyptians founded Babylon, and they founded Athens, and they founded other colonies all around the world, Um, and he had stories for them, too. Well, so the story of Moses is is based on this Greek story 
that uh, from like 40 or 50 years earlier, it basically takes the plot uh, out of that. And um, so really, so you can kind of divide up the history in uh, the Jewish Bible uh, and it, it splits into kind of three parts. There's the earliest parts are like pure mythology. And then later on, you get into stuff that might be kind of legendary. There might be some uh, legends about, you know, Abraham or Isaac uh, associated with some altar in Samaria. Um, you know, they could have had oral traditions for some of this stuff. And then finally, you get to material that has some historic content, like uh, the Book of Kings. Um, and then in the prophets, um, the prophets are mostly. They're mostly very late, but there's some early materials in them as well. Uh, we know that they're late because, um, for one thing, most of the prophets refer to uh, writings from the Book of Moses. Um, and so they have to come after 270 B.C. Um, another, another really interesting thing is that the prophets, um, several of them talk about how uh, this... Jewish sacrificial system was uh, kind of useless, that all these sacrifices and prayers were, uh, were a waste of time. And the important thing was, uh, was, was righteousness and that God couldn't be bribed with all this endless stream of sacrifices. Well, that comes right out of Plato. He talks about these same things in uh, um, several of his books, The Republic and uh, Laws and uh, uh, some others. It's all it's all straight out of Plato, so it has to be late. Mm -hmm. There's also some early stuff too. Uh, the Book of Haggai appears to be an authentic collection of oracles from around uh, five fifteen BC, around the time when the Jews were finally given authorization to construct their temple, um, and. There's another really I I love the I love finding older materials in in the Bible and the prophets and things like that. It's fascinating. Most of it is old and is late in Greek, but there's some interesting early stuff. Uh, for instance, the uh, the first chapter of Ezekiel has this vision of uh, God's throne as a chariot on this uh, heavenly realm that has. Uh, jewels sparkling in the floor and there's the cherubim and the seraphim and all the eyes and this and that. Um, there's only about two or three lines in there that even mention Yahweh. And most of it reads exactly like uh, a Babylonian source uh, that talks about uh, Marduk's throne up in the skies. Mm -hmm. And so, so here you have in Ezekiel, you have this Babylonian document that has a couple of glosses that mentioned Yahweh. So it was kind of domesticated and uh, turned into uh, a Jewish thing. But, uh, it, you know, it's pure Babylonian. So I, I, there are there are spots in the Bible that do preserve old traditions. And it's really interesting to investigate and find where they are. Uh, but the old assumption that it's all ancient uh, is it's pretty much out the window at this mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, I think that's the direction that biblical studies needs to go about now is to start looking for the 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 really old texts and trying to divide things and look at it from a reasonable point of view. Um, what else can what else can they do? I mean, once you know it's not as old as as you think it is, you know, start working with with what you have. Absolutely. It's like an archaeological site. Um, you see this site, and it, uh, and it uh, contains some old artifacts. So you say, well, this is from, you know, the time of David or Solomon or whatever. Um, and the archaeologists, they used, to, they used to like bulldoze the top layers that, that weren't interesting, the late stuff. They said, this is inter- interesting. We like the, the Bible stuff. Um, but then you discover, hey, we, we, we dated this whole thing wrong. Um, it's from, you know, the period of uh, kings clear into the Hellenistic era, era, and we need to find all the different strata, all the layers, all the different datable layers of materials to come up with a whole history. Well, looking at the Bible is the same way. There's a lot of stuff in it. And uh, that stuff's really interesting, but the late stuff is really fascinating too. Mm-hmm. Well, you so, I think the late. Uh, Go ahead. You meant, or Russell, were you going to say something? Nope. I was going to sit back and let okay. you guys say something interesting. Well, I, this leads into something I want to actually get back to something we were talking about because I think Jason had asked the question of. Um, you know why do why do people have such resistance to this kind of research and i think one of the answers one of the parts to the answer to that question gets back to the original goal of why the bible was written in the way that it was and how plato had basically set out how to do how to how to carry out this entire project because he essentially wrote wrote that into his plan how to create a system, how to create this national library, and how to create a society that completely <sighs> believes in in the truth of this um, founding document, of these laws, and to do it in such a way that everyone fervently believes it, and so that it will last for years and years and years. And so, if anything, I think that the the very fact that we have Christianity today and Judaism still going on is a testament to just how effective... Plato's method was. So I was wondering if if we could now get into Plato and what exactly he envisioned, what he, um, you know, the plan that he had and how it was put into action by these Jewish scholars in Alexandria. Sure, you bet. He he had this genius plan that he laid out on how to take a brand new a colony in a new location and create a new government for a new nation and the the citizens that they brought in would have total obedience and uh, be so loyal to that nation that it would last forever. He gave a lot of forethought to this problem. Um, and for him, the key, the key to it all was to have a set of laws uh, from from God or the gods, given in ancient times, uh, uh, that that the laws of the nation were supposed to have a divine origin, um, kind of like he was modeling them on uh, this idea on the divine laws of the Spartans and uh, Crete and a few other 
uh, countries that uh, their constitution had lasted for, uh, like the Spartans had lasted for 400 years unchanged. That was a long time back then. And it was partly because of the respect uh, given um, to the the laws of Sparta, which uh, were were uh, allegedly given to uh, uh, their founder by, um, oh, I think it was Zeus in that case. Um, so Plato said, "We have. To, it doesn't matter if we're writing a whole new set of law codes, uh, laws for this nation. We have to make the people believe they are ancient and they are divine." Um, there's a very crucial passage. Uh, that I have in front of me where he stated, if there exist laws under which men have been reared up and which uh, with heaven's blessing have remained unaltered for many centuries so that there exists no recollection or report of their ever having been different from what they are now, then the whole soul is forbidden by reverence and fear to alter any of the things established uh, in ancient times. So by hook or by crook, by any device possible then, uh, our lawgiver must divine, devise a means whereby this shall be true of his state. Um, so if you're going to found a new nation or if you're going to refound a new nation, as, as in the case of the Jews, you have to make the people believe, according to Plato, that their laws were divine, that they've been given centuries earlier, that they've never been changed, and then everyone will be reverent and fear to alter, you know, uh, a jot or a tittle in the words of Jesus. Uh, so to make these brand new laws uh, that Plato wrote in his book, you know, Plato's Laws that he wrote, uh, you know, and and then to have the audacity to claim that they were divine and exceedingly ancient, um, Plato had these strategies. Uh, you know, for one thing, he claimed that he was inspired. He believed that as a philosopher and using reason, that his soul was in contact with the divine sphere. So, uh, and that Plato's laws, that book itself was inspired, that God was guiding the conversation and that uh, that it was all it was all divine because after all, he was writing it, right? So it was inspired. Um, <laughs> but uh, but he said, though, that to, basically to sell the people that their laws were ancient uh, and divine, and to uh, to program their conscious uh, their conscious as a nation, he was a social engineer. He was engineering people's thinking from one generation to the next. He said that one of his strategies was. The rulers should uh, investigate and incorporate uh, all the local gods and deities, the old temples that they could find in the area, and old altars, uh, ancient uh, sacred laws and ancient festivals. Sure, why not? We'll incorporate those religious laws into our law code. Um, find out who the local priesthoods are and get their support. And, uh, you know, if there's a, a, an inherited uh, line of priests, we'll give them a role in our new government and we'll adopt the old legends. So all of this created an aura of antiquity and uh, a connection to the land and a connection to the gods of the lands. And it really, uh, uh, it, it, 
brought the priests into the the whole organization so that they'd have an interest in uh, in in saying that all of this stuff was ancient and divine. So that was a, a really uh, incredibly sort of genius, if mm-hmm. uh, devious uh, strategy <laughs> that he had. <laughs> and um, but finally, uh, he. Or additionally, I should say, he also laid out instructions for creating a national literature. This was really important to his overall strategy. Uh, the most important text <clears throat> in this literature uh, was going to be the law book, with the Jew, which you know, which the Jews called the Torah. Uh, and uh, besides this, the the rulers were supposed to review all existing literature, everything they had on hand. Uh, and approve it or reject it, uh, edit it, revise it uh, for compatibility with these divine laws, uh, with the law code. Um, They were supposed to come up with uh, a new set of authoritative hymns, kind of like the Psalms and plays like the Book of Job and prose and history and and, all literature, all literature in this new state, we're we're going to require uh, prior prior approval by these legislators of the of the arts, um, and only these texts were supposed to be used in the schools. All outside literature uh, was forbidden. All cultural contact with the outside world were forbidden. So they were isolated. It's like uh, the whole nation was uh, kind of like. Uh, sort of like a cult in a way. Uh, the Spartans used this uh, approach and they were very effective in uh, keeping their nation uh, under the same constitution for a long time. They, uh, they outlawed foreign contacts uh, and they had this educational system where um, all of their soldiers were, uh, were trained from the year six, you know, age six on up. Uh, um, all of their uh, education was by the state. Well, the, the Plato advocated a similar system. Uh, the Jews had a similar system with their national literature. And uh, Plato said that if you use the schools to program the youth, uh, you know, he said the youth, they'll, they'll believe anything you teach them. If you get them young enough, they will accept anything you teach them. And if you use this uh, approved uh canonical literature, uh, and if that's where all your education comes from, Plato said it would only take a generation or two uh, for the citizens to forget their actual history, which uh, in his metaphor, their memories would be wiped clean like a slate, uh, you know, like erasing a chalkboard. Uh, And they would come to believe that their laws and their way of life had been uh, revealed to their distant ancestors by the gods. Um, and so, you know, and, and as a result, the people would be so loyal to these divine, unchanging laws and their sacred literature that the nation would last forever. And you see all these same things in the creation of the Hebrew Bible and in uh, the uh, Jewish uh, theocracy uh, incorporating the, lo- the local gods and the local temples and altars and uh, the local priesthoods and some of the legends. And uh, it was a very, uh, very effective approach Plato had. Um, 
So that was his strategy. He lays he lays it all out in great detail. Uh, this is clearly what the uh, Jewish people who wrote the uh, books of Moses in uh, around 270 BC they were following this strategy, uh, and it and it's fascinating because once you know the books that they were reading, you actually know their motivation as authors and as legislators uh, and you know what they were trying to accomplish. They were creating a, um, a theocracy, uh, which is a new form of government that Plato invented, uh, ruled not by a king, but by, but by God through these uh, divine laws and through, uh, he said that there should be, a, a, the rule uh, should be by a panel of theologians and priests who were experts in the law and philosophy, uh, very much like this, uh, this new theocratic form of government that you see in the Hellenistic era in Judea with uh, rule by a high priest and by the Sanhedrin and by the council of priests. All of that comes uh, right out of Plato. He basically invented uh, the Jewish form of government as well as their literature. He had this great program and you can see from beginning to end how uh, the Jews implemented it. Hmm. And they you know, also- it's kind of horrifying. <laughs> it's it's horrifying to think that he came up with this social engineering project, mm-hmm. and the only people who really took it seriously and effectively implemented it were these this group of of uh, Jewish writers, rewriters. And it really has worked for 2,000 years. Well, as long as you don't have a country, it worked pretty well. Um, I mean, for 2,000 years, they didn't have a country, and his his republic was a republic without a land, you know? That's absolutely true. And uh, it's amazing that even when the uh, Jewish temple fell in, uh, in 135 B.C., when... Uh, when Jews were not allowed in Jerusalem anymore after the Bar Kokhba revolt and the Jewish nation really came to a complete screeching halt, an end, it still persisted for 2,000 years. You get this nation that's continuing with these uh, foundation <coughs> myths and uh, and it persisted clear to the modern times and now we have... Uh, uh, Jewish nation again, and it's probably going to last forever. But um, the Jews were not really the only group. Uh, they were the uh, they were the first ones. The Greek and Roman writers they said, "Yeah, Plato's lost. You're never going to make this work. That's crazy." His his uh, all of these ideas for creating a, a rule by God and. Uh, and laws as uh, as education and all these novel ideas, uh, they're nuts. It'll never work. Well, the Jews implemented all of those, and they worked incredibly, uh, miraculously. You know, it's and but um, and really, they're a people that were created by their national literature. I mean, not created. Well, their culture was was more or less created or invented or 
uh, certainly solidified based on the literature. The, the Arabs, uh, they called the Jews uh, the people of the book. And because they were a people who, whose existence was centered on this, uh, the, the Jewish Bible. Um, and the Jews like that, by the way. They, they acknowledged, yes, they, we are the people of the book. But the Christians were another people of the book. Um, they had their own book, the New Testament. And, uh, you know, uh, Islam is another people of the book, uh, you know, the Quran. So um, those people were imitating the Jewish Bible. So you go from Plato to the Jews to the Christians to Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, and gosh darn it, it worked every time. Mm -hmm. So, And look and what just, we have uh, now. <laughs> Yeah, I'll lead it to uh, our listeners to decide whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. Well, you know, exactly. I, I hadn't well, I hadn't thought about it while reading the book, but while having the discussion, um, it just just as a quick aside, um, I was thinking about the parallels with Islamic State today, and because I've been reading a, a couple books, um, one about a, a German um, journalist who went uh, Jürgen Todenhofer who went into the Islamic State in 2014 and, you know, talked to a lot of these guys and how they describe what they're doing and why they're doing it and how they're doing it. And it's pretty much the same thing. It's a, like these guys are, it sounds like they're, they've read Plato or they've read the Bible and they're, and they're, they've got the same idea. And so I think that's just oh, one yeah. example of the extreme, like, um, like negative, obviously negative ways that this can go about and, uh, you know, the, the fruit that it can bear. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, like the, the – go ahead, Russell, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that Plato's dark genius has cast its shadow down through history. Uh, and we will be feeling him for a long time uh, from now. But, um, you know, my my book hopefully uh, kind of pulls the curtain aside. <laughs> Curtain aside, and you see uh, Plato saying, "Ignore the man," uh, uh, you know, behind, behind the, the curtain. curtain. <laughs> <laughs> um, and maybe when uh, people realize how this actually came about, um, then at least at least future generations of young people maybe they'll have a chance not to be uh, a, a choice, uh, not to be you know indoctrinated or to have more than one view of how all of this could have come about. Um, so I don't know. There's some hope. Maybe not for the next well, the next four four years, but oh. uh, or or uh, you know the next century. But uh, uh, you know, looking looking into the future, we just need uh, to use some of Plato's uh, ideas to <laughs> no to get I mean, these ideas out there. You know, his ideas have spread even further than, than the sort of the theocratic governance. I mean, mm -hmm. secular secular uh, ideologies are also based on Plato. I mean, Shafarevich kind of pointed that out about Marxism and Leninism, that it was sort of Plato's republic, the virtuous state. Um, so there have been plenty of uh, secular uh, attempts to adopt Plato's, Plato's ideology and uh, has led to uh, not necessarily the best results. That's absolutely true. Um, now, I have tried to find out whether 
Marx and Lenin and those guys had read Plato because, well, Plato's Republic, of course. He, he Marx, proposed, yeah. He, he proposed uh, communism. Uh, I mean, at least uh, sharing of property and sharing of wives and things like that. Uh, so, um, but 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 I but I I haven't uh, yet discovered whether or not they actually did read Plato. But the the parallels are certainly astounding. And if you look at North Korea, you have not only uh, mm-hmm. the, the communism and the and the local mythology, but the cultural is- isolation where um, oh, North yeah. Korea be- believes what they believe because they can't get any information from the outside world, and that's just just. That's a very platonic strategy and very effective. Well, the interesting thing is, is that those ideas like the sharing of wives and communal property, I mean, there was a play by Aristophanes. What was it called? Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Where uh, In his play, all of the women uh, in, uh, in Greece kind of dress up with beards and they go in and they vote to turn over the power to them. And then they basically institute – Essentially, like the way that it's described in the in the fragment that I read from the play, it is essentially like you know uh, Marxism. It's sort of communism with communal property and and communal wives and everybody working together. And you know, it was it, it, they're old ideas and they, they can be traced through all the way up through history, all the way up to Marx. So I'm pretty sure that Marx would have read certainly Plato's Republic. Um, I would, I would think so. Um, Aristotle, Aristotle had an interesting criticism of uh, Plato's Republic. He said, uh, you know, with everybody having everybody, you know, wives in common and all of that, you're going to you're going to have people who are marrying their own sister. You you, you right. have no way of knowing. He said that's that's just wrong. And uh, so that was a bit of a <clears throat> bit of a criticism he had for for his mentor. Plato. And well, it was it was a, a legitimate criticism, and I think that there are a number of legitimate criticisms about Plato. As much as he is held in such high esteem by many many people, undeservedly. I undeservedly, yeah, undeservedly, I think. Uh, I mean, this this whole uh, Republican laws is you know almost. I mean, it's Machiavellian. Well, it seemed to me that Aristotle was kind of trying to. Uh put forward, I suppose, maybe a counter, not really a counter argument necessarily, but a counter program in politics and Nicomachean ethics. And he kind of wrote very extensively on all those topics too. And it seemed like his version was different from Plato's that he, he diverged and, and actually, I think was, I think in the end he stopped liking Plato very much. I'm not sure about that though. Well, he certainly had a different approach. Uh, Plato in his early works, he really studied uh, rhetoric and persuasion and myth and uh, and uh, kind of all the tools of propaganda. I guess we can call right. it that. Um, and he just he condemned the the sophists who were who uh, were the masters of rhetoric and their techniques. He said you could convince anybody of anything with those techniques. But in his later uh, works, uh, he incorporated rhetoric right and left, and uh, he. But he, his basic approach was to use 
myth and story and rhetoric and persuasion to uh, persuade ordinary people to obey the laws and be virtuous, uh, even if they didn't really understand it all. Uh, and then the philosophers, they were going to be in charge. They would have knowledge. Uh, everyone else would have, everyone else would have opinions. Uh, but right. reason and knowledge weren't for the common people. They, they, um, the rulers had to shape their beliefs and behaviors. Um, but Aristotle, he, he, uh, he said, well, in his book on rhetoric, he basically said, Everybody uh, can understand reason, and reason is accessible to everybody, mm -hmm. and you can't just use uh, rhetorical arguments to manipulate people uh, into what you believe. He he was, I'm more of an Aristotelian myself than a Plato guy, yeah. but I really, under, I really understand Plato. Well, I mean, I was sort of, um, there, there's a few little things about Plato that I that I read or heard about, there was a sort of an in, incidence where he uh, he supposedly purchased up all the books of Pythagoras or something like that, or some collection of books, and then buried them. And it seemed like he may have been the type that was going around and uh, kind of suppressing what he considered to be you know important knowledge and sort of filtering it through his own system, through his sort of his own academy. So he seems to be sort of like this really cultic individual. And I found that a little bit uh, distasteful. You know, I didn't really like the the various different stories that you have of him. Well, he, um, I don't know about that particular story, but in the Republic, he laid out a whole program for censorship. He says that all the poets oh, yeah. should be banned and uh, the Greek poetry should be censored, either eliminated or edited. And uh, you had the same thing in, in laws uh, where you had uh, the nocturnal council, this council of priests and theologians. They were basically the thought police and they controlled literature. They controlled speech. Uh, they controlled what plays you could uh, put on, what jokes you could tell, uh, mm. what song. You know, you'd have to, if you were a comedian, you had to run your material past uh, the censors before you could tell it to people. Um, so uh, he was just heavily into uh into mind control is that the way to phrase it yeah. or at least programming, yeah, or, programming beliefs and behaviors well yeah i mean he invented that i guess what did he call it psychogogia psychogogy or something like that this yes. uh, uh -huh. the teach the teacher the basically brainwashing children um Absolutely. to believe something that he admittedly admittedly was false right you know his whole project was uh, kind of to tell people a series of very noble lies and to basically brainwash them in those, to keep them subjugated to the state. Yes, he he said that, uh, and this is interesting, he said that um, if you tell a story set in ancient times, when you really don't know what was going on anyway, nobody really knows, then uh, you can tell a lie, a fiction and it can be more more true than the real truth if it conveys positive uh, beliefs about the gods, uh, right. and and that's that was basically his uh, you know his approach to ancient history is uh, you go back far enough and you can say whatever you want. Um, 
in in the uh, in the republic you know he laid out his whole political theory first in the republic uh later he wrote uh two books called Timaeus and the Critias about the story of Atlantis and in that he had uh um Critias said that he heard this tale that the lawgiver, the Greek lawgiver Solon, heard from the Egyptians about the ancient residents of Atlanta, uh, of, of Athens, and how they defended the whole world against the wicked uh, people from Atlantis. And he said that uh, these these ancient Athenians before the big flood, before the big flood wiped wiped out all of the records of this stuff, that. Uh, their government was exactly like in the Republic. He said, uh, right. you know, Solon, he, he said that they had the guardian class and the craftsmen right. and this and that. And, uh, and Socrates was so amazed that that was exactly what, uh, he had just laid out in the Republic and the night before, the Republic the night before. So, um, how convenient. <laughs> how, how convenient. And he said, okay, so we're going to tell this, this myth, but we're going to tell it, uh, as as though it's fact, it's passed from the realm of myth into the path, realm of fact. And, and since it was in ancient times, you could make up anything, and didn't matter if it was false, you could pass it off as true because it would support uh, the national ideology and the constitution and laws and the beliefs of the right. ruling class. I mean, that kind of stuff is like a real slippery slope, though, if you look at it. Like, first you start saying, well, we're talking about the distant past. But when you start using the distant past to justify what you're doing today, then all of a sudden, well, it's not so much about, you know, telling a lie about the past. It's telling a lie about the past to support uh, a, a present propaganda. You know, and of course, it was kind of convenient that the most holy book in his republic was going to be his own book, The Laws. Um, or, you know, that that was going to be everything. And it was, he was going to be the philosopher king. And I mean, it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's kind of convenient that you come up with a, a political system that will ensure that you get to rule over everybody. I, I think we kind of know what type of person does that. Exactly true. So um, it seems like Plato ends up being, in a, in a very real sense, uh, the philosophical father of lies. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, if you think about it, though, I mean, he is he is sort of very satanic, actually, from a, well, from a Miltonian, a John that, Milton that, sense. That, mean, leads me, is, that leads me to a question oh, that I, I was curious about, um, about Plato, because I've read, I've read different accounts of this, and this, and this is, uh, you know, somewhat controversial, and that's his, his thoughts on pederasty and homosexuality, because I believe there's one passage in the book where you, you uh, where, Russell, you talk about this. Um, and how the how some of the things that Plato had written on homosexuality made it into the Bible, but then I've also heard that in at least in one interpretation, he is very like pro pederasty in um, some of his other works. Do you have any more information on that and what he thought about that? Um, well, yeah, I can give you an overview. It's it's uh, nothing that I'm particularly uh, innovative about. I'll just report what's uh, common knowledge well first off of course you know in the uh in in the in sparta ancient sparta which was a military state um the soldiers in sparta they were uh 
pretty much expected to have a junior soldier that they would train and rear up and also have sexual relations with. And the loyalty between the uh, the young soldier and the old soldier uh, made them defend each other in in battle. And it was supposed to be a, a good thing from a military standpoint. <laughs> and uh, Plato was a big fan of the Spartan system. Um, and uh, in the Republic, he said uh, that if you were one of these uh, guardians, the, the warriors uh, class, uh, who were supposed to be as uh, as ferocious as a, as a pit bull, uh, and yet uh, totally uh, doting on their master. So ferocious to outsiders, but friendly to the ruling class. So, But if you were one of these uh, heroic warriors, then you could have the pick of anyone you wanted to have sexual relations with, uh, male or female. In laws, he backed off of that. And he said, the only acceptable form of sex is uh, for the purpose of procreation, um, that, that young men and women should wait until they were 30 to 40 because that's the ideal age to have children and then they should get married and have children and anything outside that was forbidden. But he said, uh, yeah, except that, uh, uh, you know, people are going to have affairs. That's just the way it is. Therefore, uh, we'll have a second law that if they have an affair, um, they have to keep it quiet because it's bad for public morale for people to be taking each other's wives. And the other thing was uh, homosexuality. That's, uh, you can't control that. That's a, a most, that's an urge that you just can't control. So we have a second law there. Uh, if you're going to be gay, uh, you know, stay in the closet because it's bad for public morale. Uh, don't ask, don't tell, or, uh, you know, <laughs> stay in the closet. So, and of course, Plato, Plato was, of course, homosexual. That uh, That's just, he didn't have any children. And it's just a matter of uh, secondary secondary historical sources say he was. Uh, that's not controversial or derogatory or anything. It's just a fact. So it was Aristotle and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people back then were, and that that's fine. But uh, but he really legislated uh, all that hypocrisy. And the part about uh, outlawing homosexuality, uh, that probably made it into... Uh, into the book of Leviticus in a very strong way. Um, hmm. And that's not necessarily a great thing because everybody should have a, a right to uh, life and liberty yeah. and the pursuit of whatever yeah. happiness they can have. <laughs> but, if, well, there was also a whole, a whole lot of laws about adultery. And I mean, it, 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 the death sentence for that sort of thing. I mean, it was... For homosexuality or adultery, I mean, you died. Well, I mean, there was just something anti-liberty about everything that Plato did and uh, what ended up being done with what Plato did. I think it was sort of conspicuous that Leviticus and, and, the, and the Jewish law comes out far harder on on uh, sexual immorality than, than even Plato does. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was sort of a little bit ironic, you know, because uh, he was—he seems to at least have been a little, far more realistic about it. But 
the seeds were always there for repression. You know, the seeds, the, once you open the door for that anti-liberty stuff, it really just can go any way and can become quite crippling to a culture, very oppressive. And lots of people are getting stoned and dead and living in fear. And, you know, it's not even a matter of staying in the closet. It becomes sort of like, a, you know, you know, it's, it's an existential threat all of a sudden to certain types of people, which I think is very negative True. on a culture to have existential threats in the, in, in the legal system against people just basically doing kind of people things. Um, I think that is a slippery slope that, that, uh, that unfortunately is, is one of the one more of the negative aspects of the, the Republic yeah. and the laws and the, and the platonic thinking. Yeah, I think he pretty much uh, greased the water slide and and gave people a a, a good shovel. Uh, <laughs> I don't even think it's uh, you know he he started out in a very bad place. I think, but but you're right though. Uh, Leviticus took it even further. So I, I your point is well taken. Yeah. Well, I, what I find interesting is, from my understanding, uh, one of the better parts of the New Testament was that at least it gave slightly, very mildly, this kind of um, liberalizing of that. You know, there was this sort of uh, statement, I think it's from John chapter, I can't remember, where it was, uh, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. John 21, 20, 21. Oh, yeah, something like that. Uh, where that was sort of, and you see that kind of being uh, quoted a lot now, especially in defense of, well, yeah, you can judge uh, people's sexual immorality all you want, but if you're not without sin, why don't you just, you know, kind of like back off? So there was like a lot of that with the New Testament sort of uh, undoing what was done before. Well, that's true. And, you know, switching over to the New Testament just briefly, uh, you know, Jesus he never said a word about uh, homosexuality. Certainly Paul did, uh, but Jesus never did. And yet he had, um, I don't know, at least six or eight or 10 speeches where he railed against uh, hypocrisy and people who prayed in public and liked to say how religious they were. And all of his criticisms were for uh, religious people and people who were self-righteous and pompous. And um, that is what he was against more than anything. And uh, so it's kind of ironic uh, when people posture in public about uh, about these issues that were of lesser import- importance, apparently, to uh, Jesus as written in the Gospels. Well, yeah, I mean, as a as a defense of of kind of uh, Jesus and the New Testament, it did have a couple of interesting sort of, I guess you could say, almost anti-Platonic or anti-Republic kind of things. Because here's a person who spends most of his time uh, basically do, uh, using you know clever tricks and whatever clever uh, speech and 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 ideas and wit to basically go against what were ostensibly the sort of the 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 philosopher kings the the kind of like the theocratic class uh, ruling over Judea I mean everything is about him sort of coming up with uh, pithy pithy ways to to outfox and outlogic the uh, the religious authorities at the time so there was something very anti-platonic about it um, that's true 
And uh, Plato also, uh, I think there's some arguments against uh, uh, Plato in, in Paul, rather, uh, because he, he, he talks about uh, how uh, the law isn't that important and uh, forgiveness of sin and this and that. When, uh, when Plato was very much that uh, righteousness, obedience, that was the thing. You got everyone to obey the law and uh, prayers and sacrifices by the wicked so that their sins were would be forgiven. Uh, to him, that was uh, that was kind of blasphemous because right. that is letting the gods participate in human wickedness, basically. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the theology of the New Testament is... Uh, it contains echoes of Plato and mostly on, on the other side, I think. Yeah. Can, can we go back to uh, your first book? Uh, I mean, I just want to kind of get back to that one because you were talking sure. about the kind of people who got together uh, to do this job, to write this text, to gather. And I, and I expect it took years to gather everything together. Um but the initial, you know, uh, writing of the Torah was probably the first step, and then began to gather the literature together, the the uh, the remainder of it. So that probably took years. What it, what's your take on that? Well, I think that's exactly correct. Um, the Torah, uh, the books of Moses, um, uh, they, they appear to have all been written at Alexandria around 270 BC. Uh, that was the first phase. And Plato, he he had two phases. The first one to, was to come up with the Constitution and laws. And that's just what they did at Alexandria. And then his second phase was to uh, come up with this national literature in support of the laws. And from all the hints that I can see in Plato's laws, I think that was supposed to take probably 10 years. Uh, because he said that uh, there's going to be a 10-year period of adjustment. If some of the laws aren't quite perfect, then you can test them out and change them. And uh, uh, this was, you know, the t there was the 10-year phase to, to get things all fixed uh, was a big deal in Plato's laws. I think that's probably fairly accurate uh, for when the first version of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament came together. Um, and that took place uh, in Jerusalem. That was no longer in Alexandria. Um, they came home from Alexandria, and the people in Jerusalem seemed to have taken charge of this phase. At Alexandria, you had Jews and Samaritans both working on the Torah, uh, which is a sacred book to both the Jews and the Samaritans. The rest of the Bible, uh, the Samaritans kicked to the curb, and and the rest of the Bible, especially starting in uh, in the Book of Kings, has a very negative take on the Samaritans. Uh, it says that they, the Northern Kingdom, they worship Baal, and uh, they never came. Unlike the Jews, they never came back from exile, and uh, and uh, basically the Samaritans were written out of the rest of the Bible. Uh, it's had a very exclusive focus on Jerusalem, even though uh, there was a temple of Yahweh at uh, Mount Gerizim that was 
larger than Jerusalem's temple and going on at the same time. So, uh, so you're right. It took it took a few years. Uh, it probably took ten years, and then uh, it would have taken uh, you know an, at least another generation for this new literature to uh, be taught in the schools and the new institution called the synagogue and in the homes and all of that, and to indoctrinate the, the new youth coming up. Um, so, you know, Plato said it would take a generation, maybe two generations, and then the people wouldn't even remember their past. They would remember the new past that had basically been invented for them. And uh, in our historical re in our historical reading, that's basically what happened uh, because so if you have around 270 BC, you have a theocracy, a new form of government in Judea. You have new laws, new literature. By around 200 BC, uh, the historical sources said that the Jews uh, said the Torah was there, contained their ancient ancestral laws and constitution, that uh, that that was their national text. And by the 160s BC, um, when the Seleucids tried to outlaw uh, the Jewish religion and laws and literature, uh, the Maccabees, they fought this war of liberation, a very brave war against uh, uh, huge numbers of uh, invaders uh, in order to save this literature. Um, you know, they didn't want a Greek constitution. They wanted their national uh, ancestral uh, laws back in place. So, so it uh, really just in pretty much the time frame that uh, that Plato specified, the Jews fully adopted this new literature and laws and the and their Bible. And uh, gosh, it's just like he wrote the history of the Jews. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's quite amazing. And, um, but another aspect of his plan was that, um, you know, when you created this literature and these new laws and stuff for this new nation, um, the people had to believe that it was, uh, all of this was done in ancient times, you know, like the Jews had to believe that all of this was laid down by the laws of Moses for their ancestors. So, uh, as part of that process, that first generation of lawgivers, you almost have to erase uh, the memory of those actual historical people who created this new set of laws and who established, uh, you know, Plato's laws in this new country. And that kind of took place, too, because the... Uh, the Jewish scholars and Samaritan scholars who went to Alexandria and who created uh, the books of Moses and wrote the laws of Moses and all of that, um, later generations did not, they didn't remember them as the authors of the books of Moses. They kind of demoted them to uh, just translators. They took these, uh, what, they took what uh, was presented as ancient, ancient Hebrew writings, and all they did was translated them into Greek, and they were celebrated as as uh, just as important as the 70 elders at Mount Sinai uh, who received the law in ancient times. But uh, so these, these uh, 
these 70 people who wrote the, uh, the, the books of Moses and the Pentateuch and started off this whole thing, uh, they were kind of erased from, from memory. It's very interesting. Hmm. Uh, any idea who any of them might have been? Well, um, yes, I do possibly know one of them. Uh, yes. But that's going to be in a future book. Um, oh, please. <laughs> no, we can't I'll, give away I'll, all of his secrets. No, 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 no. I will give you a little preview here. <laughs> um, um, I, I had mentioned that both Jews and Samaritans uh, wrote the books of Moses and Alexandria. Um, all right. We know that because uh, the books of Moses have all sorts of positive references to Gerizim, uh, where the Samaritan temple was, and other important Samaritan places. And they doesn't really mention Jerusalem or and uh, they're they're Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel. That was the thing. So, um, so there is uh, a Samaritan author. His name hasn't actually come down to us, but scholars call him uh, Pseudo-Eupolemus. Uh, Eusebius wrote a couple fragments of this uh, Samaritan's writings, and uh, it's very interesting stuff. Um, and uh, Eusebius mistakenly identified him as Eupolemus, who was a different Jewish author. So scholars say, ah, it wasn't really Eupolemus. But he was a Samaritan. He wrote these, uh, a couple passages preserved by the church father Eusebius. And this stuff that he wrote uh, looks to be earlier than the Bible. And uh, it, it does have some traditions about Abraham. Uh, for instance, Abraham went to Egypt and he brought um, the writings of Enoch with him and taught the Egyptians about uh, astronomy and uh, it has all sorts of different esoteric things like uh, um, Abraham was descended from the giants and uh, different uh -huh. fascinating stuff. And, and a lot of Hellenistic research and sources and sources that were found at the great library of Alexandria looks to be uh, pre-biblical, but, researched at the Great Library, and I think he was one of the people who was there. Uh, I think that he was one of those uh, 70 elders of the of the legend from mm. Samaria and Judea. So, yeah, and um, so in a future book, uh, I'm going <coughs> to... I'm going to lay out some passages from the Pseudepigrapha, you know, the or uh, which is kind of between the Jewish Bible and the and the New Testament. Um, it preserves some of this stuff that's earlier than the Book of Genesis that the Book of Genesis uh -huh. drew drew on, and it'll be really fascinating. I've got a, a great case to make, um, so that'll be a couple books down the line. Though. Do the books when, of Enoch when are figure we gonna... that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. When I, I, go ahead. I heard both of you at once, and <laughs> yeah, so I heard. Go, go ahead, I, Harrison. Do how do the books of Enoch fit into that? Is that some of the stuff that you're talking about? Because there's that whole um, like field of study that I think uh, what's what's his name Bocciacini, um has devoted to the Enochic Judaism. Um, are you familiar with his work and and how those texts might fit into 
fit into this? I am familiar with his work, and he has a whole elaborate theory of how uh, Enochic Judaism uh, was kind of different from and parallel to uh, what he called Mosaic Judaism. Mm -hmm. Uh, The problem is with him and the people in his school of thought is that they accept this old chronology of biblical texts Mm -hmm. going back into, uh, you know, Persian era and earlier. So their chronology is all, uh, you just have to toss. You just have to toss. But, uh, and yet, um, there does seem to be a relationship between some of the Enoch traditions and uh, the biblical text. You have, uh, well, the figure of Enoch, and he was the seventh generation after Adam, and he walked with God, and uh, he never died. Um, that like the Babylonian be, king. Like the Babylonian king, Enmer Daronki, the seventh uh, king. And also... Uh, one of the seven, the seventh uh, Apkalu or primordial sage in uh, in uh, Babylonian myth, he also went to heaven, and they had heavenly <clears throat> wisdom there. Um, and the whole Watcher myth, where the Watchers came down from heaven, and uh, they had all this angelic uh, heavenly secrets of scientific. Uh, lore, and they intermarried with the daughters of men and had giants. That's another, just a hint of a tradition in the Bible that uh, suggests that there was a much larger uh, tradition out there, and that that was the only part that basically escaped the censors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, two books from now, I'm going to be dealing with all of that and develop what the original uh, Enochian traditions were and how they're related to the the Babylonian uh, traditions like you mentioned, Enmer Daronki and the 10 generations before the flood and uh, Mesopotamian scientific uh, literature on astronomy and this and that, which, uh, which came down to, in the books of Enoch, they're called Watcher Lore or the books of the Watchers. Well, this is scientific... Uh, literature from Assyria and Babylonia, which persisted down into Jewish times and which um, the um, authors of the Book of Enoch, they responded to very negatively. Uh, and yet some of that stuff is uh, uh, was used in the Bible. Um, the astronomical Book of Enoch uh, was used in the first chapter of Genesis in its section on astronomy. The term, the technical terminology there is exactly the same. And there's been, uh, uh, James Vanderkam has written showing that, you know, there's interdependence between the two. He thinks that the Bible's older, of course, and that the yeah. astronomical book of Enoch came from that. He's got that backwards. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Uh, so there's a text that's older than the Bible that the Bible uses. And I think it's just fascinating finding this, these pre-biblical and proto-biblical traditions. Um, well, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of flavor of Zoroastrianism in the Book of the Watchers. And also in, um, yeah, and it's it's really... You know, I had to really dig into the Zoroastrian thing because I had ignored it completely for such a long time. 
But just recently, Philip Davis, in one of his recent books, you know, he proposed that uh, upon the return from uh, Babylon during the time of the Persians, that the religion that was propagated by the Persians, not necessarily by any big horde of returnees, was a, a form of Zoroastrianism. And I thought that that was kind of interesting. I th- I think it's fascinating. I I think there's something there. I have not, and you know, I've read Mary Boise, uh, who's a big authority on ancient Zoroastrianism, and uh, some other uh, authors. And I think there's something there. Uh, I can't quite come up with a smoking gun as to when and where the influence came in, but. Uh, Definitely, there's something, and and uh, the Zoroastrian dualism uh, comes into the Qumran literature of the uh, sons of light versus the sons of darkness, and that cosmic conflict uh, has definite strains from uh, Zoroaster. So somehow the influences made it in, and uh, I'm, you know, that's on my radar to research more at some future date, uh, but. It's it's fascinating finding the authentic old influences that are there. Yeah. What are you working on right now? Well, I'm working on two books. Uh, well, I'm working on three books. Uh, you know, I've got at least eight books lined up. Uh, it'll keep me busy for the rest of my life. But uh, um, the next two are, uh, the first one is on uh, Plato and the biblical creation account um Greek monotheism and Jewish polytheism in the primeval history that's the title of my next one and it will show how how Genesis 1 uh came from Greek scientific uh cosmology and in particular from Plato's Timaeus and also uh, Genesis 2 through 11, uh, a lot of these myths and stories and stuff, which are so non-scientific, uh, they were also uh, foreshadowed by Plato. So anyway, it'll be a really interesting subject. Uh, and it will show how the ruling class monotheism in Genesis 1 coexisted with these crazy stories of God walking around in the Garden of Eden or uh, having lunch with Abraham or things like that. Um, and then my next my next book is going to be on this uh, uh, Enoch stuff, uh, the Babylonian um, and Assyrian scientific traditions that kind of infiltrated the primeval history. Uh, and um, and how the Samaritans were the channel of transmission for these uh, watcher traditions and uh, Babylonian science and astronomy and things like that, uh, how they were the means by which a lot of this stuff came to the later Jews and into the Bible. So those are the next two projects. And then I've got others after that. And a popular version of my Plato book. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and is there any, uh, do you have any timeline on when any of those three books are going to be released? Well, the first two that I mentioned, uh, 
I'm just swatting footnotes now. They're basically written, and I'm, uh, you know, getting all my references in place. Uh, and then there'll be a little revision. So they're, they're going to be finished in very early 2017. And, um, and hopefully my popular book as well, I just need to sit down and get into a creative space and get my uh, writing juices flowing <laughs> for a more uh, popular creative approach. It's going to be such a delight not to have to put a footnote after every sentence <laughs> and to... Uh... <laughs> and and to, and to explain just how dramatic and fascinating this stuff is, um, yeah. you know the public the public needs to understand all of this stuff. We yes, it's it's kind of like um, it's kind of like for millennia we believed that uh, you know uh, that God created the universe in seven days or whatever. And now we have telescopes that can see clear to the Big Bang and see the origins of the universe and study it. Uh, really, we've got that old light from uh, basically the moment of creation and, and as scientists, <laughs> and, uh, we can look at it and figure out what was going on. Well, it's kind of the same way now with our more recent history and uh, the origins of the Bible and Christianity and things like that. I think, um, or I hope my books kind of are like a telescope into the past mm -hmm. where we see what was really going on and uh, we can see the cast of characters and uh, what books they were reading and, uh, uh, you know, what their what ideas were going through their minds when they were writing this stuff and what their aims were. And uh, I just, I think... It would be fascinating if everyone understood the story of how it all happened. Um, I agree. I think it's very not. exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Harrison, give the names of his books again so that all the readers or listeners can uh, make a note of them and a website address. Yep. So for all our listeners right now, you can. we've got the hyperlinks in the show description. The two books are Barosis and Genesis, Manitho and Exodus from 2006 and 2016's Plato and the Creation of the Hebrew Bible. They're both available on Amazon. Um, the one unfortunate thing is that they're academic texts and very expensive as a result. Um, but I do think that if, you're, if any listeners are interested, they are worth it. These are... Um, like, uh, I think some of the best books ever written on the topic from, you know, my relatively limited I agree. Yeah, exposure to this kind of thing. But check them out. And if you can't, if for whatever reason you can't afford it, um, try to get them in from your library. Try to, you know, just do anything you can to try to find them. And um, I guess other than that, we'll just be waiting on your new books, Russell. And I'm well, looking forward to them. If I may just toss in one final note, uh, Plato and the Creation of the Hebrew Bible is also available less expensively in the Kindle version okay, for great. like forty-some dollars. So some people have read that. Oh, that's great. And uh, and if you want to see my picture and my biography and all my books and stuff, you can go to russellgeberkin.com, which is a link that's also on uh, that you kindly put mm -hmm. up on your. Uh, radio network page and uh, uh, you can even send me an email if you want to visit so uh, great but uh, 
it's been very fun talking with you guys. And Same here. It's been a lot of fun. We, it's we, been yeah. very educational for me. I thank you. I thank you. Well, when your next book comes out, we'll have to do it again so we can talk about that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to. You okay. Well, thanks I, so I'm much. I'm excited for about the prospect of a popular book. Um, I'm excited about that because uh, as much as I as much as I actually enjoyed Plato and the creation of the Hebrew Bible, um, there was a point at which following the footnotes, you know, because then you go into the footnotes and then uh, there's actually notes in the notes. It kind of got very sort of. I read footnotes. What are you talking about? <clears throat> Well, after a while, you're just like, okay, I agree that you've done the research from now on. Just you don't have to put any more footnotes for me. I'm gonna. I, I see that you've been thorough. I trust you now. Uh, let's just get move. Just moving on the ideas because I feel compelled to read the footnotes. Once oh, but there are some gems in those footnotes. <laughs> there are. There are some really great things in those footnotes. You know, especially at the, in the last chapter. Yep. Yeah, I I agree. It's terrific. All right. All right, All right well, then. Thanks again, Russell. It was great talking to you. You're going to take us out, uh, Harrison? All right. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night. So thanks Bye. again, and we'll talk to you all next week. Everyone take care. <laughs>